Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Today's tale is the first of a two-parter, exploring the mythic origins of Britain. And if you believe the chronicles from which the story is drawn, it is not a story at all. Rather, it is a true and faithful account of historical events, and should be understood as such. Because of this, today's episode may sometimes sound a bit more like a history lesson than a traditional story. But I assure you, it is a history which deviates in every meaningful way from anything you already think you know about early Britain. So let us go further back into time than ever before we have delved on this podcast. Back three millennia before Normans, Danes, Angles, Saxons, Romans or even Celts had come to Britain. And geographically, we come to a place on the southwest coast of our island. The location today is known as the town of Totnes. But back then, of course, it had no name at all and a group of people are making their way inshore, leaving the boats they have just arrived from behind them. By their armour and weapons, it is clear that these people are largely soldiers, but they are also finely attired and absurdly physically fit. At the head of them is a huge man. He towers head and shoulders above them all, and at first glance it seems as though this giant must surely be their leader but closer inspection reveals that he is following another smaller man. Smaller by comparison, that is, for if it wasn't for his giant companion, you would expect this man to be shoo-in for Mr. Universe 1000 years BCE. This man is Brutus. And no, not that Brutus. A different Brutus. Look, Brutus, that Brutus, totally ruined the name for anyone else. This Brutus lived over a millennia before that Brutus, so couldn't possibly be him. It was just a normal name before then. But anyway, as our story begins, this Brutus was setting foot on a strange land, his army and his people following behind him loyally. Wait, what was that? Brutus holds up a hand and the army stops obediently. He finds his eyes fixed on a conveniently positioned pail of water. And suddenly, there was a ripple in it. And again, another ripple. And now, everyone could feel it. A trembling, far off in the distance. And gradually, it got louder. The earth shook until everyone could hear it. The noise got louder and louder, and finally, out ahead of the army, a pack of gigantic, club-wielding monsters, as if from out of some horrible nightmare, burst forth from the trees and bore down upon Brutus and his soldiers. He, in turn, raised his sword and shouted a command. Forward! and his soldiers shouted and surged forward to meet the challenge. 
the two sides, human and monster, met in a tremendous clash of arms. And let's freeze frame right there. As these two forces make battle for ultimate superiority over this strange island at the end of the world, let's go back even further and see how we got here. And to do that, we need to head back hundreds of years further still, until we're back, back in the very early mists of time. And somewhat unexpectedly, we're also shifting the narrative lens several thousand miles away, to the very cradle of civilization, the area we now call the Middle East, to a kingdom that is called Syria, though a Syria of far greater extent than the modern nation. Emperor Diocletian rules over Syria, and over the course of his reign he has conquered all the other lands that are known in the world at the time. So now all the kings of the world pay tribute to him. He took a wife, a beautiful woman named Labana, and took is probably meant quite literally here, as she was the daughter of one of his enemies. Reprehensible behaviour? pretty much par for the course for world-conquering monarchs. And Labana gave birth to Diocletian's daughters, all 33 of them. We're not told about any sons, but even allowing for a lot of twins, triplets and the like, that's still a lot of children for one woman to give birth to. I mean, people are still impressed by Hercules' relatively modest 12 labours. For the sake of Labana, and given that from the rest of the story we can tell the daughters' ages seem to be reasonably close, there's a strong case for believing that her parentage of all of them was something of a polite legal fiction. In any case, Diocletian, Emperor of Syria and the known world, had 33 daughters. And when they grew up, they were, inevitably, all the most fair and beautiful of women. Which we can attribute perhaps 50-50 to, on the one hand, having access to the best diet, health care and beauty regimes that the ancient world had to offer, with the other 50% due to access to the best PR, propaganda and military might that ensured that everyone was definitely going to agree that these were the most beautiful daughters that any king had ever had. The names of the daughters have been lost to history, save one alone, the eldest, Albina. The daughters grew up together and their lives in the palaces of their father were easy and good. They became firm friends bound not just by family ties, but by genuine affection for each other. But eventually, they all grew from girls into women, and being a woman at that time meant one thing alone. Marriage. With this in mind, Diocletian sent messages to all the kings and lords, princes, dukes, and other assorted noblery of the lands he ruled. All of them were invited to a great royal feast and festival. And on the most important day of the feast, Diocletian would choose husbands for each of his daughters from amongst the various assorted bigwigs, according, of course, to his own whims and fancies. His daughter's role in this was, quite simply, do what you're told, get married off. The grand banquet of multiple marriages was a tremendous success. A rip-roaring time was had by everyone in attendance. Everyone, that is, except the daughters, around whom the whole event was organised. For them, it was a cruel and heart-wrenching affair. When the festival was over, they would be separated from each other forever, each carried off to a different, distant land, each to live the rest of her life as wife to a stranger whose only qualifying criteria 
was impressing their dad. After days of celebration, the feast broke up. The successful suitors each took back with them one of the daughters of Diocletian and Labana to be their wife. And everyone was just as happy with the arrangement as you might expect. Albina, separated from the sisters she had known for so long, grew both sad and angry in the home of her new husband. She wouldn't praise him like he wanted. She despised the man and refused to show him the affection he expected from her. He wanted her to obey his every command, to play her role of good wife in his little kingdom. But she tried to retain scraps of her own independence. As one source of the story puts it, she would not do his will. She would have her own will in diverse matters. She might be stuck in this awful situation, but wherever she found any area of her life where she had the power to resist, to do things her way, Albina did so. And though she might not know it, a similar story was unfolding in parallel for the rest of the sisters, each scorning their husbands slash kidnappers, and trying as best as they were able to not become the meek, submissive slaves expected of them. The husbands were enraged and they tried to encourage the women to change their ways, to love them, to act like the perfectly obedient queens they had expected. They warned them, they shouted at them, told them to fall in love, or else, and when that failed to produce the results they wanted, then these great and noble men began to beat their new wives. And... Remarkably, this did not help the situation and caused some kind of mass Stockholm syndrome where the women fell in love with their captors and lived happily ever after. I know, it's just confusing. Finally, it was too much for Albina's husband and he wrote a letter to the emperor. I imagine it to be a sickening parody of a customer complaint. Dear Sir, I regret to inform you that the wife you manufactured for me is defective, has own personality, emotional state seems to be permanently set to misery, and it keeps exhibiting signs of an innate sense of self, quite against my wishes. As recommended in the user's manual, I have already used both verbal threats and physical violence, but item remains stubborn and angry. As the manufacturer of these goods, I believe they should be covered by your warranty, and I look forward to hearing from you soon with a proposal to bring this matter to a satisfactory conclusion, and provide me of the wife of the quality I was promised. And just to be clear, that is an empty, animate shell of a woman, completely dead inside, which nevertheless presents a permanent illusion of joy on the outside. And does dusting and stuff. Yours sincerely, King Such and Such. And quickly, the presence of this letter became known to the other husbands. They had not previously realised that whining to the emperor about their wives' behaviour was an option. But once they did, they all got instructing their own scribes to draw up official letters of complaint about the awful behaviour of these terrible daughters. And soon, letter after letter was arriving at Diocletian's palace, telling tales of the misery of his daughters. And reading them all, it gradually dawned on him what an awful thing he had done. He had forced his own daughters into lives of slavery. He resolved to annul all the marriages and bring them back together, apologising as profusely as he could, whatever the cost to his own reputation. 
Nah, just kidding. This was a man whose own wife was basically a prisoner of war. He was filled first with a great sense of shame. Who raises children like this? And then with an even greater sense of anger. Not at himself, not at the king's, but at his daughter's. He was going to sort this out. He would make things right. He was emperor. And so he stuck with what he knew and he threw another feast. This time he invited all the men who had married his daughters along with their wives. With many more days of feasting, the emperor made his amends to the men who had been so awfully wronged. And on the last day of the feast, he asked that all the princesses be sent to him. Assembled in front of their father, the sisters were immensely glad to see each other again after being parted so long. But any joy at their reunion was short-lived when Diocletian stood up to address them all. You have been wicked women. You have brought dishonour upon yourselves, but, more importantly, you have brought dishonour upon me. Listen well. You will go back to the husbands I chose for you, and you will be the best of wives. And should you be anything but the most faithful, most obedient, most pleasing example of femininity that has ever been, then you shall lose my love forever and suffer my wrath. So directly spurned by their father, any hope that this meeting might somehow make amends was dashed, and the daughters did the only thing they realistically could. They promised to make amends, to behave the way they had been ordered. They promised everything that their father wanted out of fear of what he would do if they did not. And eventually, after more ranting, Diocletian, a man used to always being obeyed, was satisfied that his warnings had had their desired effect and that this temeritous display of disobedience would never occur again. He dismissed his audience and bid them to leave his chambers and return to their husbands. And so they trooped out of their father's chambers. And as they did so, Albina realised both that this was the last time they might ever see each other and that they were, once again, all here together, in their own home, and without father or husband watching over them. If something was going to be done, this was the last possible moment for it. It was quite literally, now or never. Albina grasped the moment. She spoke up. She pointed out to everyone that their husbands didn't know they'd left the Emperor yet. They didn't have to go back to them straight away. Her own spacious childhood chambers were very close. And with that, she led all of her sisters into her rooms, making sure to bolt the doors after them. Each woman had a truly dreadful story to tell about the horrors she had experienced. And each wanted to tell of her own woes, but also hear all the stories of her sisters. But they didn't have much time, and so Albina cut the consoling short. She addressed them all. Sisters, we have seen that our father will not support us, that he hates us, will send us back to those monsters to be their slaves for the rest of our lives. But we are free people. We are daughters of the Emperor. We should not stand for this. It is intolerable that anyone should be treated like this. But what can we do against them, sister? We are all agreed we cannot live this way, yes? said Albina. There was some sobbing and a chorus of agreement. 
Then let us show them that we are united in our rejection of this. Each of us must go back now to these men, to their beds, where they expect us to be broken, meek and mild. Let us act this part for a little while. Let them believe our father's words have broken our wills like their fists could not. Wait until they sleep. Each of us knows this palace well. Each of us can easily find a suitable knife. Wait until they sleep. Then produce that knife. Cut the throat of the man who would rape and beat you. There was stunned silence in the room. Here we are together, under our father's roof. And though I doubt he would show mercy, it is better that we do this here than in our husband's households, with their guards waiting to foil our plans. Here we have a chance to end this. Tonight. Together. Or we could go back with them, and live the rest of our lives without each other, in solitude, misery and servitude. And as Albina spoke, there was a sense of purpose slowly spreading through the women, each sibling drawing strength from the ascent of the other. A nodding began. A growing atmosphere of grim determination and resolve filled the air. Albina went back to the room her husband was in, and he found her a changed woman. He didn't notice her shudder as he touched her, didn't notice how her voice was almost cracking when she apologised for how wrong she had been, promised how different she'd be from now on. When he admonished her for all she had done, and she accepted everything he said without a word, he didn't notice her twitch. After all the days of feasting, he was tired, and caressed gently by the wife he barely knew, he went to sleep truly happy. A few minutes later, Albina looked down at this peacefully sleeping man, this monster who had shouted at her, abused her, beaten her countless times. The intensity of her hate for him gave her strength, and when she finally brought the knife down on his throat, she felt herself overcome with the greatest sense of relief. And as blood covered her, and the desperate, shocked man choked to death, she felt the greatest sense of calm. A similar scene played out in the bedchambers of the 32 other sisters, not one of whom deviated from the plan. And early next morning, the Emperor was awoken by reports from his guards. Garbled and incoherent, when he eventually got the details out of them, they were unbelievable and horrific. We can gloss over exactly what happened next. Surprising no one, the Emperor reached a level of fury hitherto unknown in this world conqueror, and he would very much have liked to have each and every one of his daughters burnt for their crimes. By the way, this is the second daughter-burning event that has occurred on this podcast, and it's not really a great trend to set, and I don't know what that says about me and the stories that I pick, or the general stories that make up the mythology of Britain. Legendary dads often want to burn their daughters. Not a good look. Anyway, the nobles of Syria and the advisors to the emperor eventually convinced them that to burn his own daughters, however terrible their crimes, was not actually a great plan. The reasons that they did this are not entirely clear, given that they were quite unlikely to side with the daughters in this. However, it is a historical fact that many legal systems habitually treat the rich and well-connected far more leniently than the poor, and perhaps the nobles simply wished not to set a precedent 
that could be dangerous for themselves at a later date. Whatever the reason, everyone agreed that something had to be done. So, instead of executing the women publicly, they settled on putting them in a ship without any method of steering and with very limited amounts of food, putting it out to sea, and, for good measure, forbidding the sisters to ever return to the lands of their birth. This was definitely more merciful than burning, and not just the, if I happen to move my arms like this, and you happen to get in the way, I'm not hitting you, version of an execution. So, when the vessel was launched, and the sisters gazed back at the lands that used to be theirs, they had mixed feelings. They were surprised to be alive, delighted to be together, but with little hope that there was much more life left for them. They were in the hands of the gods now, and they prayed to Apollo for help. But their pleas seemed to no avail, for a great storm came up, and the winds blew them further and further away from their former lands until they could see no trace of land at all. And to really put the icing on the cake, a great storm arose. Having no method of steering and knowing very little about boats, the sisters bore it all as the pitiless sea raged around them. The ship rose on the crests of the waves and fell in their troughs. People were nearly washed overboard, and the ferocity of the ocean threatened to sink the ship many times. The winds howled, and the sisters were all alone in what seemed like an endless, tumultuous ocean. But no storm hurt them as much as the hunger that grew inside them slowly eating away at them all. And after experiencing this hunger and the terror of the seas for days on end, an utter exhaustion overcame the women, and one by one they found themselves able to do nothing but lie down and wait, hope even, for death to finally take them. But fate and the winds had different plans, and just as all of the daughters had given up, the weather calmed and more gentle breezes pushed them onwards until finally the vessel was carried up onto the shores of a far distant land. And when the tide went out, the ship was left upon a beach. Gradually, the unwilling sailors woke up and they found to their astonishment that they were still alive. But it wasn't time to celebrate yet. Hunger still ravaged them. Albina was first off the ship, using all her strength she headed inland to see what could be found. There was no sign of human habitation close to the beach prison ship, and no food of the kind they recognised was anywhere to be found. In desperation they turned to eating whatever vegetation they could forage, wolfing down acorns and chestnuts, and this sustained them for a while. And in a bit, they discovered apples and pears as well, and swallowed them greedily as one might expect and the hunger receded. The women took time to rest, recover from their ordeal, and it suddenly dawned on the group that for the first time since their terrible wedding day, they were out of danger. They were certainly poor now, reduced from their previous riches to the poorest of the poor, having to forage for their food daily. But they were finally free, alive, and together. But they had no idea where they were still, Knowing people like they did, they worried. They were defenceless against anyone who wished them harm, and so, once properly recuperated, they set out to explore this new and strange land, to find out what country it was they'd come to. Mm-hmm.
They travelled for weeks and months, the resourceful group exploring the entire land. But this was not your traditional exploring, by which I mean there was no holding up telescopes, looking through telescopes, enslaving locals to do the hard work, telling the locals that they were being discovered, wearing khaki and piff helmets. Though there might have been quicksand, you do get quicksand in the UK, but it was probably absent those little wooden signs that say danger quicksand on them, and are always ignored. So, a different kind of exploring than the usual type is what I'm trying to emphasise. Anyway, they wandered the forests, the valleys, the plains and the hills, and they found a great variety of animals. There were rivers filled with fish, meadows with wildflowers, wild birds sang in the trees, and their melodies brought joy to the sisters' ears. But no trace at all of humanity could be found. And eventually, when they were sure they had traversed the place from shore to shore, it was apparent that this was completely uninhabited. A brand new land, untamed, untouched. It was their land alone, and they were truly free. Fortune has smiled upon us, declared Albina. We have suffered greatly, but now we have been given this place as our own. But it needs a name, and as I was first to touch it, I suggest that from now on it shall be known as Albion, after me. And her being eldest and having led them successfully, the other sisters were more than happy to go along with this. Albion provided for them and the sisters were overcome with a great sense of joy to finally have a home, their own home, Albion. So yes, in a not-so-shocking revelation, because I've already told you it, this was the island of Britain that comprises the bulk of England, Scotland and Wales, and Albina and her sisters were its very first inhabitants. By the way, I definitely wouldn't recommend trying to picture the sea route from Syria to Britain and exactly how that would work on a boat that can't be steered. One chronicle states that the ship was blown really far west, which is kind of right, though there's a lot of north in there. I think we just have to accept it. Gods, fate, all that kind of magical stuff. It's also worth noting here that in the medieval version of British history, the country was given its first name by a group of Syrian refugees. Now, life in Albion was pretty good for the sisters. There was an initial period of adjustment to not having the trappings of wealth, or indeed any goods at all really. For instance, the women craved meat, and for a while they were unsure of how to acquire it. Farms were non-existent, as were arrows, bladed weapons, trained dogs, anything that could be used to hunt. But these were resourceful, ingenious and intelligent people, and they applied themselves to the problem. After much hard work and experimentation, and obligatory sounds of sawing and hammering, even though they had neither saws nor hammers, the women created a huge wealth of contraptions and contrivances with which to hunt the animals and birds of the land. And soon, food became so plentiful that they always ate well, and so they grew healthy and fat. And when they had achieved this, life could have been just perfect for the sisters. Loads of great food, homebrew, no warfare or slavery, being able to stay up past bedtime, yep, this was fantastic. But there was just one aspect of life that was missing. And yes, you giggling at the back, 
it was exactly that. The women began to ache for the euphemistic company of men. All alone and all sisters, there was no outlet for their passions and their lecherous desires grew. Now, this is hardly a rare situation for human beings to find themselves in. And as a species, it's fair to say we have pretty much perfected methods for satisfying our more base urges without necessarily requiring the involvement of anybody else and to live full and satisfying lives while we do so. And had events not arranged themselves so, it might have been thus for Albina and her sisters. Specifically, had it not been for all the incubi. For while Albion had been free of humans, it turned out the land was not entirely uninhabited. In fact, the forests were veritably riddled with demons, and specifically, incubi. Incubi, the plural of incubus, are the slightly less famous brother of the succubi, and of all your usual succubus qualities, but in a demonic male form. And, for some reason, they were all over ancient Britain. Invisible most of the time, the incubi watched the women as they began their new lives. And they waited patiently. And when a woman was overcome with lust, a demon would appear to her in the guise of a man, offered to satisfy her wildest desires and fantasies. And should she permit it, then the incubus would give the woman what she wanted. Sate her hunger for the company of men. And yes, if you've been paying attention, you will notice that the evil demons show far more understanding about the importance of consent and a woman's desires than do all the men in the story. Having better sexual etiquette than the literal forces of hell should be a pretty low bar. But none of the men managed to make it. And really, the whole thing with the incubi meant that all the desires of the women were now fulfilled. They could have settled down and enjoyed this little slice of paradise. But... Unfortunately, these were still demons. And strangely enough, it turned out there were consequences to carnal acts of a profane and diabolical nature. These became apparent when the women began to fall pregnant. Their labour was normal, but the children they gave birth to were not. For a while they appeared almost as normal human babies, but even uglier. But as they grew, well, they grew, and they grew, and they grew far beyond the height of normal humans, and as they did so, their features warped and changed. They became creatures of enormous size and monstrous visage. It was not too long until Albina and her sisters found themselves living amongst their own gargantuan and increasingly hideous children. And it seems kind of odd, but this is the last we see of Albina and her sisters. We do not know how the last years of their eventful lives played out. I personally like to imagine them happy to some degree. However their children might have turned out, they had escaped the tyranny of their husbands and father, and made a life for themselves when all the odds were against them. It all seems rather sudden and narratively unfulfilling. Believe me, I know. But this is history. And obviously, this is simply based on the records we have to hand. But this was not the end of the story for the giants they had birthed. The brothers and sisters turned lovers, giving birth to even stranger, more hideous creatures. For generations, the land of Britain was populated by these descendants of Albina, her sisters 
and the incubi. And they have left their mark on this country up until this day. You can see their remains in the huge bones that may be found amongst the rocks of the hills. Sharp teeth, femurs four foot long, shoulder blades wide as a shield. These are all regularly discovered by those who search for such things. And their impact upon the landscape of modern day Britain extends beyond their remains. For the giants were a warlike people, so unlike humans. And they built vast defences, dug immense ditches, erected walls of stones and earth. And the remains of these marvels can also be seen to this very day, as can the places where the giants lived in the hills. And so, for hundreds of years, Albion was the home of the giants, great and terrible as they were. But over time, due to their violent nature, and probably owing quite a lot to the considerable levels of inbreeding, the giant population dwindled, so that by the time our story began today, there were only 24 of them left. And the biggest and ugliest of them all was called Gogmagog. And it was Gogmagog who led the assault on Brutus's troops as narrated at the very opening of this episode. So, that's the story of one side in this battle. Your fairly typical descendants of demons and princesses exiled for the murder of their abusive husbands, origin story. Honestly, I'm not sure why there isn't a Disney version of this already. But, what about the opposition? On the other side was Brutus, not that Brutus, and following him, a Trojan army. Next episode, we'll learn all about them. Okay, so a bit of context to what you've just heard. The story of Albina first surfaces in the mid-14th century, in an Anglo-Norman manuscript dated to about 1334. By the way, Anglo-Norman is a language which, without going into too much detail, is a bit like French. It was the primary language used by the aristocracy of England and Normandy, which, for about 350 years after Norman conquest, were ruled by the same kings and were essentially the same country. The story is a direct prequel to a very famous and popular text called The History of the Kings of Britain. I'll be discussing that a lot more next episode, so I don't want to spend too much time on it here, but just to give a quick overview, as its name suggests, it essentially details a royal history of Britain, from its very first inhabitants up to the modern day. In that book, the first inhabitants of Britain encounter giants, and the story of Albina explains where they came from. Though it was first written as a separate document, it became very popular, and later manuscripts combined both, with the Albina legend the first episode in the history. It's a bit like some well-regarded fan fiction eventually becoming acknowledged canon. And it really was very popular, popping up all over the place for centuries, as part of this broader manuscript which was known as the Brut Chronicle. And what a story this is. I don't know whether you felt the same as I did, but when I first read it, I was just struck by how decidedly weird it is, in most particulars. For instance, I definitely did not see the whole Incubus bit coming along. It's tied to the Middle East for no particular reason. And it has murderous women at its centre. And if you think I'm overemphasising it a little bit, then consider that this is a national origin story, if not in the actual people, but in the name Albion. The word Albion is often said proudly and patriotically, as if to evoke some vague, glorious past of these islands. And the word sounds very different, 
when you realise it's a reference to the leader of a group of cold-blooded, murderous, Middle Eastern princesses who regularly hooked up with creatures from the pit of hell and in so doing spawned a race of incestuous giants. Glorious Albion. To be clear here, I know that this is not the historically verified origin of the term Albion. The story came later than the word. Please, no letters. And about the whole murder business, let's talk a bit about how I've told the story. As usual, there are different versions of the tale. There are essentially two versions, and in the other variant, the one I didn't tell, there is one sister, the youngest, who actually loves her husband. She betrays the plot to her husband, and he in turn stops the murders being carried out. No dead kings. But the rest of the tale, with the banishment and the ship, continues pretty much the same way. I preferred the version when the women do get to carry through with their plan, and this is probably because the way I've told the story comes down hard on one side of the moral ambiguity that runs through it. By which I mean, the telling I've given portrays the women as victims first, and then as people fighting back against injustice who find freedom. But, as you might expect, this is not the way it's told in all versions of the tale. Now, this doesn't mean I've taken great liberties with the text. But in some versions, particularly those where the murders aren't carried out, the focus is on the princesses being the wicked ones, rather than as kidnapped and forced into marriage. In those tales, they are haughty, prideful and arrogant. They believe themselves better than everyone else, because they are princesses, and these men are just some nobodies. I mean, the husbands still beat their wives for wanting their own way, so... Seen through modern eyes, it doesn't build a compelling case against the women. But the story in that telling is much more of a warning about the evils that result from wicked women, who do not know their proper place. They lose contact with society, eventually with civilization itself, and the evils reach their frenzied culmination in the demonic couplings and the resulting terror of having to give birth to hideous children. And yes, in certain versions of the story that element is strong, and it reads as a simple tale warning against sins such as pride, gluttony and lechery, particularly in women. But in other manuscripts, which are closer to the version I've told, it's definitely no straightforward moral tale, and a certain tension remains between what's good and bad, what is punishment and what is reward. The mistreatment by the husbands is referenced often as is the freedom of the daughters in the almost Eden-like setting of Albion. Hardly the worst punishment murderers have ever suffered. The women aren't necessarily treated as villains. And to quote from academic Dr Tamar Drucker, they, the princesses, have been mistreated, and yet found the courage and the strength to fight for what they believe is rightfully theirs. Their safe arrival in Britain and their survival on the island characterise the women as brave, courageous and resourceful, not as the dangerous, unruly women they may appear to be at first. End quote. And yet, of course, also, they don't get to become great heroes, but there's the thing with giving birth to all those giants. As the story goes, it's a genuinely mixed bag. Oh, and as an aside, the bit about the giants constructing earthworks and their bones being found are absolutely from the original texts. Giants were often used in medieval times to explain the activities of more ancient peoples. It was common to label features in the landscape, such as caves or burial mounds, as belonging to this or that giant, with lots of local legends built up around how they came to be. 
we might cover some of those in a future episode. One other thing about this is a national origin myth. In the 12th century, so slightly predating the Albina story, there was a tale of the daughter of an Egyptian pharaoh who was called Scotta. And, according to the historical record, she was the person who founded, no prizes for this one, Scotland. When the Albion tale was first told, England, or Anglo-Normandy as it properly was, was often at war with the Scots. And there is some suggestion that these two tales were in competition as to who settled the island which contains England, Scotland and Wales first. So, the Albina story might also be, to some extent, a small, very odd piece of pro-English propaganda. Though with the bit about the demons and giants, I'm not sure I personally would go bragging about that. So, that's it for this episode. I really do think these would make great Disney princesses, so maybe we should start a petition or something. As already mentioned, next time we'll be continuing our look at the mythical origins of Britain by going back to the city of Troy. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.